Uh, we're going to look at the book of Genesis for the next several weeks, just, just uh, chapters by chapters. We're not going to go through verse by verse, but we're going to take a story or a theme of each section of Scripture. So today we're going to look at chapters 1 through 5 and a key pivotal story within it. Now, the author of, of Genesis is believed uh, by history to be Moses. We don't know. Moses didn't sign his name to it, but there are a lot of indications that it was Moses. There are some questions that it could be Moses because it talks about Moses' death, but it's believed that Moses wrote most of it or compiled it during the years 1500 to 1300 B.C., after the Israelites left Egypt. And it's believed that the reason it was written was to remind the Israelites of their roots, of, of where they came from. See, if you go back through Genesis, you find Abraham, the origin of the, of the Jewish race through Abraham, but it goes even further than that, all the way back to Adam and Eve, their, their creation by God. And it seems like Moses was trying to remind the Israelites of their history. This is the kind of God you worship. You worship him rightfully because he's your maker. But you need to know what kind of God he is. And these stories that we go through in the book of Genesis remind us even today what kind of God we worship. And you'll see it very clearly in the story that we're going to look at today of Adam and Eve. And so if you have a Bible, you might open up. We're not going to read through, like I said, every verse of every chapter. We're going to look at some selective stories. But I want to focus on three key pieces to the story found in the middle of this section of Scripture. And the first piece of the story concerns a tree. A tree. It says there, Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. I I shared with you last week that God made man in the image of God. We read that in chapter 1. Of all the days of creation, it got to the sixth day, and God made man different than all the other creatures, all the plants, all the animals. God made man to bear his image. What does that mean to bear God's image? It means that we have certain qualities or capabilities that allow us to be almost godlike. For example, we have the ability to create in ways that nothing else in creation can. I mean, we can create rockets that can blast people to the moon. We can, we can do all sorts of things. We can write music and, and art and create. We're just creative. That's a God-given ability. We've been given the ability to communicate in, in ways that other creatures can't. We've been given the ability to choose, which is really probably the highest capability. We don't act on instinct, though sometimes we, we may be tempted to do that. We choose our behavior. We get to choose how we want to respond. And that's why the world is the way it is, the good of the world and the bad of the world because of our choices. And so God made us in his image. And by the way, this is very significant because all through history, many pagan kings would make their image known throughout their empire through statues. Or if you you travel today in some parts of the world, you'll find large pictures of the king or the emperor or the ruler. You go to North Korea and there's a statue of the leader. I mean, you, you see their image around because they want you to be reminded of the fact they're in charge. And in some cases, that they are God or God-like. Many leaders see themselves as almost like God's representatives on the earth, and they should be worshipped like God. In the Roman culture during Jesus' day, the Caesars saw themselves as divine. And on the back of the coin, on one side would be the image of Caesar. On the back side, it would say, uh, Divus meaning divine, God. This is, this is who we worship. We call Caesar Lord because he's God. And so that's why when Jesus was on the earth and someone said, you know, you need to pay taxes, he says, well, pull out your coins. Whose image is on the coins? Is it Caesar's? Then, then give to Caesar what bears his image, and you give to God what bears his image. Now, what bears his image? You and me. 
We belong to God because he made us. There is no place on this planet where God doesn't say, that person there in the far reaches of Africa or Australia or the little island, that, that human being there is my image, that's my territory right there. That's, that's the, the breadth of my kingdom where there are people. It reminds us that, that every single person bears this likeness of God in some way. It doesn't matter how old they are, how young they are. It doesn't matter what nationality. It doesn't matter uh, of any physical deformity. Every human being equally is made in the image of God. That's so critical to remember. We have this night to shine event coming up in just a few weeks. And many people who have special needs because of maybe some some physical um, disability or maybe some chromosomal deformity, they're still made in the image of God. They still reflect God in a very beautiful way. Children, children of all types, even unborn children. That's why abortion is such a horrendous thing. You're, You're taking the life of someone made in God's image. That's not your right. Every single person. That's why when we, we send people out, you know, on mission trips to go into the world, it's because God loves those people. They bear his image. We have a responsibility for them. And so we, we see this in the Garden of Eden. Man is made in the image of God. And then we go down to verse 15 where it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day... You eat of it, you shall surely die. So God put Adam in the garden. He says, okay, this is going to be your job. Take care of the garden. Manage it. By the way, you see that work has already entered the garden of Eden ever before sin does. Work is not the result of sin. You need to tell your teenager that, okay? It's not part of the curse. In fact, when you go to Revelation, there's work in heaven. There's work in the end. So there is no retirement in the kingdom of God. We'll always be working, so get used to it, okay? And he puts in there, and he says, you're going to take care of this, but there's, there's one thing that you've just got to stay away from. It's that tree, that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We don't know what it looks like. We don't know what kind of fruit is on it, but he knows which tree it is. It's a specific tree. Do not eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, we're going to skip ahead a little bit because right after this, Adam names all the animals, and he realizes he's lonely, so... So God puts him to sleep and says, you know, I'm going to do better this time. I'm going to make a woman. So he makes a woman. And uh, just kidding, men. Just, but I want to win some points here. So man and woman come together. They become one. It's a beautiful story. It's a whole other sermon that we don't have time to get into today. But, but God brings them together, and they're united uh, in, as, as one. But then um, this tree This tree becomes the focal point. This tree becomes an issue. Why are they prohibited from eating something that would give them knowledge of good and evil? I mean, think about it. What's wrong with that? Isn't that something we want our kids to know? What's good and what's evil and how to discern between the two? In fact, if you read through Scripture, there are many places where it actually talks about discerning between good and evil. It's a mark of maturity. What's wrong with this? It just seems bizarre. Why would God, you know, stay away from the tree of horrendous evil? No, stay away from the tree of good and evil. Well, I, wanna, I want you to look at it from the parent's perspective. When, when you're a parent, you don't give young children a lot of knowledge. Why? Because they can't handle it yet. And here's a prime example. Your five-year-old asks, um, how did little brother come to be? You know, how do, where do babies come from? Now, you don't say, okay, I'm going to get a textbook out. Here's what a man does. Here's what a woman does. You know, they make love. They do this little the, the sperm and the egg, and they do all these things. We don't get into that. We don't talk about naked bodies. We don't do all that stuff with kids. 
We, we get very surface, kind of vague answers until they get older and they're more mature and we give them more information. Why is that? Because, because when you're not mature enough, you can't handle the knowledge. You can't handle it. What it does, what it does is, is knowledge too early creates within us a curiosity that can lead to unhealthy experimentation. Pornography is a great example. You know, there's a lot of curiosity. You can see how bad it is to someone, and it's just going to make them curious. I mean, that, that's really what's on that screen? Really? That's, i got to see it for myself. You know, you're drawn to it. That's what that's, that's, this knowledge does, because what has to come alongside knowledge is this thing called wisdom. If you don't have wisdom with knowledge, it can be very dangerous. We want to shift it to another area of life. Let's look at finances. You give a 21-year-old professional athlete $5 million because of the signing contract, and I can guarantee you that $5 million will not make that man instantly more responsible. What it will likely reveal are his weaknesses and his sinful habits because he can't handle that much money. That, that's, that's kind of what it's like. If you ever saw the movie Big with Tom Hanks, He's a little boy that goes through this transformation. Now he's in an adult body, but he's still a little boy inside and does little boy things. You know, he, can't, he can't live in the adult world in the, in the proper way because he's still immature. That's the problem with Adam and Eve. They don't have schools. They don't have parents teaching them. They're the new kids on the block. Even though you may say, well, they're adults. Yeah, but they're, they're the first ones. They're not learning from anybody else. All they have is God telling them, hey, all this is yours, just one thing. Don't eat from that tree. Don't eat from that one tree. That's all they have to do. It's kind of like with our kids. When they're very little, uh, we don't go into lengthy explanations of why they have to brush their teeth, why they have to go to bed by 7.30, why they have to do homework, or you know, why they can't watch certain shows. We just tell them, that's the way it is. Mommy said so. Daddy said so. Why? Because they can't handle the full information. They can't process all that information. Right now at your age, just trust me, don't go in the street. Just trust me, don't go in the street. That's all you need to know. Hold my hand. That's all you need to know. It's as if God's telling them, this is all you need to know. I don't have to explain it. Just trust me. Don't touch the tree. See, it says in Proverbs, very, very wise thing, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. There is this kind of reverential respect of God saying, okay, God, obviously you know better than I do, and there's a reason why you're saying no. I trust you. And to not obey says, I don't trust you. We're going to see, this is the tension Adam and Eve are going to wrestle with. Is God trustworthy on this issue? Can we trust what God's telling us to do? And, you know, as kids get older, they start to hear other voices. It's, 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 the, it's the kid in the classroom. It's the kid on the football team. It's the, it's the girl that I hang out with. They start saying things different than the parents. And we may call this thing like they're gonna, they start to learn street smarts. Street smarts are things you don't learn in the classroom. You don't learn from your parents. You learn uh, on, on the road in life. And I'm not saying that street smarts are bad, but street smarts gives you both the bad and the good. You get both of them. And that's the danger. You're not ready for this. You're not ready to handle this information. And so Adam and Eve will eventually be faced with this choice, trust God or not. Same choice that uh, the Israelites faced when they stood before this, their Garden of Eden, which was the promised land. And God said, trust me, go in there, take over the land. It's giants and, and there's... there's 
things in there that are going to be challenging, but trust me, we'll defeat those. And they got to the edge of the land, and they said, uh 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 I don't know if we can trust God on this one. And so what happened? They ended up wandering around for 40 years. In fact, before they went into the promised land, Moses gave them a warning. God spoke through Moses, and this is in Deuteronomy 30. See, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Just obey me. That's all I'm asking you to do. Just obey me. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over to the Jordan to enter and possess. Very similar. You're going to die. You you reject me. You're going to die. Not instantaneous death, but you're going to be deprived of the blessings of the promised land. And so God wants to bless us. He wants to bless you. He wants to bless me. But he says, do you trust me enough to do what I says? It's, it's, It's how we love him, obeying his commandments. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. That's how we show our parents we love them. That's how we show God we love. That's the story of the tree. But now enters the tempter, the tempter. You start chapter 3 like this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, you may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, and neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. The Hebrew word uh, for this creature can be translated serpent, snake, or one who practices divination. Michael Heiser, who's a biblical scholar, works for Logos uh, Bible Software, says the adjective of this word uh, is, is shining one. And he's, he believes that this is a serpentine angel, kind of a, a funky-looking angel, because in the book of Isaiah, this shining one is called Lucifer, the day star. And if you remember the story of, of Satan, Satan was an angel created by God in the spiritual realm, arose with pride to contend with God for glory and praise, and God cast him out of heaven. Well, it appears he landed on earth, and he found a different place to exercise authority. And so he comes to the, the, the woman and begins to challenge her, he begins to question her. It almost feels like Satan could not get authority in heaven and said, okay, here's what I'll do. I'll take it from your children on earth. And really think about it. God God placed man on this earth to rule over this earth, and we willingly oftentimes have handed it over to another ruler. And that's why the scripture says Satan is the God of this age, because we've listened to him. We've we've fallen for his lies. He goes by a lot of different titles, deceiver, liar, thief, roaring lion, but he's also called the tempter. And if you remember when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, that, that there was a voice from heaven that said, uh, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And then right after that, it says that Jesus was led out in the wilderness where he was tempted for 40 days. And this is where, the, where Satan then gives him multiple temptations. The very first temptation, both recorded in Luke and Matthew's Gospels, 
says this. The Satan said, turn, if you are the son of God, turn the stones into bread. Now, now pause. If you are the son of God, what did we just end the prior chapter with? His baptism and the voice of God saying, you are my who? Beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Satan comes and says, is, is God really right? Is that who you are? Come on, if you really are the son of God, then, then show us, do some magic. Put, make this, these stones and turn them into bread. I mean, Satan has a way of saying, did God really say that? And that's what he does with Eve. Did God really say you can't eat of any of these trees? Well, no, he didn't say that. She said no. He said the, the tree that's in the midst of the garden, we're not to eat it. In fact, we're not even to touch it, which is a little bit of a stretch because it doesn't say that God said don't touch it, but definitely God said don't eat of the tree that's in the middle of the garden. And Satan says, you know why? Because he knows what I know, that if you eat of that tree, you'll become wise and have knowledge like he has of all good and all evil. And so Eve said, huh, really? So it sounds like something good that God's trying to keep from me. So she, she took a bite of the fruit. We have no idea what the fruit was, but it was good. It looked good. And she shared it with her husband, Eve, and they both ate. And then suddenly they realized that they were naked. They felt shame, and they, they covered themselves with uh, garments made of fig leaves, which I don't know how long those would last, probably not very long. <laughs> but, but for the first time in their lives, they, they felt ashamed of being naked. Up to that point, it was okay, but now it's, now it's embarrassing. You know what's, what, what I love about little children? They, they aren't ashamed to run around the house naked. I mean, you get a little two-year-old out of the bathtub, and they come running around. Sometimes you have company in the house, and you go, hey, hey, wrap a towel around you right there, buster. You know, they're running all around, but they're just, they're just having fun. It's kind of cute. You slap their little bottom and go, 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 get some, go get some clothes on. Now, if your teenager did that, you would have a fit. <laughs> and you know what? Teenagers really get bent out of shape when mom or dad walk around in their underwear. So it's just cover up, please, please, dad. Oh, no. You know, we're... It's embarrassing. We want to cover up. We're, we're ashamed. But, you know, there was a time when we, we didn't feel that way. We didn't feel shame. And so Adam and Eve feel this shame, and they hide in the trees. They hide in the trees. You know, it's, uh, it's sad how Adam and Eve respond because God comes looking for them, and they feel uncomfortable in his presence. And know this, their disobedience didn't push God away. Their disobedience caused them to not feel safe with God. See, where's God? God's pursuing. God's walking in the garden saying, where are you? He knows where they are, but where are you? Come on, Adam, where are you? I'm here, God. Why are you hiding? What'd you do? Tell me the story. He says, well, that woman you gave me... She convinced me to do something I really didn't want to do. But Lord, really, I put the blame on her. In fact, I I could put the blame on you because you made her that way. So then God goes to Eve, says, Eve, what's your story? Oh, it's the serpent. It's his fault. It's the serpent's fault. He did it. He did it. And that's a typical response, just passing the buck. Someone else is to blame. You know, parents are to blame. My boss is to blame. You know, the weather's to blame. My genes are to blame. You know, someone else is to blame, but, but not me. It wasn't my choice. I was kind of forced to do something I really 
<clears throat> didn't want to do. You know, we may think in hindsight, like, if I, was, if I would go back in time and could be Adam and Eve, I would have chose differently. I mean, oh, think of all the good things I could have had if I just avoided that tree. But I want to tell you, I, I think we're worse than Adam and Eve, to be honest. The, the amount of knowledge we have today and still make bad choices is mind-boggling. I mean, we know what happens when you smoke or vape. We do it anyway. We, we, know what ha- we, we know the nutritional value of junk food, and we consume it. I mean, I just did a video a few weeks ago of walking down a chip aisle at a grocery store that was like 30 yards long of chips. That's potatoes and other nutrients that are deep fried and filled with all kinds of junk, salt and other stuff. I know a lot of people are doing diets at the start of the new year, and, and really all diets boil down to a, a simple plan. If we would just eat healthy food in moderate amounts and get some level of exercise, we would do really well. Yet that's not enough information. We want some quick fix, something we can, we can, we can you know, some exercise plan we can burn the fat off with, some diet we can burn the fat off with really fast. The problem is we do this. We roller coaster. We do that. We can't, we can't maintain it, and we slide back down sometimes to a worse place, and then we get all excited. New Year's, I'm going to do it this time. We, we do it again. It's this roller coaster when, in reality... You know, the, the Mediterranean diet, by the way, is the, um, right now is, is rated as like the top diet. So if you go to the Mediterranean area, are they on a Mediterranean diet or is that just their way of life? It's just their way of life. He's like, oh, no, we're, we're committed to the Mediterranean diet. That's where we live. No, it's just that's how we eat. That's our way of life. Wouldn't it be cool if that was just our way of life? We just eat healthy. We just eat moderately. We get exercise. But see, the knowledge doesn't translate to action. And, and all the choices we make in our culture when we have all the knowledge. I mean, think about it. We have, we have more Bible studies, more tools, more resources than any generation in history. And I would, I, and I would argue that we are not more moral than, than other, na- other time periods. We're not the most moral, upstanding people. In fact, I, I see us kind of sliding even further away in our morality. And Satan is behind it all. In 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul writes and says, I'm afraid that the serpent... That as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Meaning, he's still at it today. He's still at it today. He is a slick salesman. Peter N. says the serpent is a crafty salesman and Eve the naive customer. He is more persistent than any timeshare salesman you've ever met. He will not take no for an answer. You ever heard the phrase, do not negotiate with the terrorist? Don't negotiate with, this, with the serpent. Don't sit down and say, I'm going to win this argument. You won't. He's craftier than you are. And what happens is he wears you down. Pretty soon, <clears throat> excuse me, pretty soon your firm no becomes, well, not this time. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to look at that show. I'm not going to touch that person. I'm not going to say what's on my mind. I'm not going to do it. Not this time. Which, which is an indication, oh, then you will sometime. You will sometime. And Satan says, if you will sometime, then why not this time? And then you say, okay, okay, just this once, just a peek, just a taste, just a little bit, just this once, that's all I'm going to do. Never again, just that one time. And you know what sin does? One doesn't satisfy. It's, it's like a terrible drug. And it pulls you in again and again and again. And pretty soon we're under his spell. See, here's what's so horrible about this sin is that God is a good king. Who can blame God for giving this bounty of Eden with one restriction? 
That's a good king. He's a powerful king. And yet they said, no, we're going we're to give our loyalty to the usurper king, Satan. We, we're going to trust him on this one, God. And that's what you and I do when we sin. And here's one of Satan's lies. You can live like that without consequence. And that's not true. There are consequences for our choices. Adam and Eve were told, in that day, you would surely die. Now, it's not like they fell over dead that day. They were, they were sent out of the garden. They were sent out of the garden, and they received consequences for their actions. And yet, in, in the midst of the consequences, we see God giving grace. And that's where this last part of the story comes in, the triumph. The triumph. <clears throat> see, there are two big problems here. One is sin, and one is Satan. We're going to find God giving victory over both of these. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, the dominoes began to fall. As I said, they, they felt the shame, this embarrassment, this guilt. They made fig leaf coverings for themselves. But listen in verse 7. It says, in the eyes of both were open. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. You know, we try to cover our shame and guilt. And not with loincloths, but we try to cover it with, like, good deeds. Like, if I can just do enough good deeds, that'll cover my bad deeds, and I'll be good in God's sight, Right? If I just go to church, pray, give money, surely God will say that's enough to cover your, your sins. And it, you can't do that. You can't buy a covering. You can say, well, if I just, if I just um, minimize it, shrink it down, then it's not going to be that big of a deal. If I, if I listen to what other people tell me, I'm going to be able to cover my sin that way. And that doesn't work either. We need, we need a covering for sin, but that covering is going to come from someone else. And what happens with Adam and Eve is God makes a covering for them. In verse 21, it says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. So instead of fragile fig leaf coverings, they have more comfortable cloth coverings. Now, let me ask you, where did that cloth come from? Where did this leather skin come from? An animal that was killed for your benefit. And in this, we start to see that, that sin requires the death of somebody. And sin requires, in this case, the death of an animal. We'll see that in the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. Animals, bulls, goats, lambs, birds are sacrificed as a reminder that someone has to pay a price. Someone has to give their life so that you can go free. That's how forgiveness comes through, the, through the, the blood covering of sin. And so we, he gives us triumph over sin through the blood that is shed by this animal, which foreshadows the sacrificial system, which then leads ultimately to the Lamb of God who is sacrificed for the sins of the world, Jesus Christ. He becomes a covering for our sins. David knew the grace that came with forgiveness. In Psalm 32.1, he says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. So he deals with the issue of our sin. You may have sinned. It doesn't matter how bad you've sinned, how bad you've rebelled against God. God says, I've got a cure for it. I've got a way to cover that. My son, Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, that'll cover it. But there's a second problem, and that is Satan. God gives us victory over Satan. We see a foreshadowing of this in the, the curse that God gives to the serpent. It says, the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Satan, who who was puffing himself up, who wanted to be exalted, who was filled with pride, God said, you know what? You will be crawling on your belly. You can't get any lower than that. Now, this this is a symbolic statement. Satan, you are brought as low as they can be brought. 
You, you are not going to be exalted. God does not exalt proud people. And Satan's going to crawl on his belly. He says, that woman that you deceived, she's going to have some offspring, and they're going to contend with you. There's going to be conflict. And your children, the children of the devil, which, by the way, are those that choose to follow him. Jesus said, called people who follow Satan children of the devil. He says, your children will contend with her children, and particularly one of them. And one of those, you will strike his heel. You will cause harm to him. You will hurt him, but it won't be a death blow. He, in turn, though, will crush your head. This is a reference to the the gospel story that that Jesus one day would suffer. The offspring of the woman would suffer a bruise from Satan, but then God would crush his head with his victory on the cross. And we see this playing out through Scripture, but ultimately in the book of Revelation, where we see in chapter uh, 20 where it says, "And and he sees the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil, and Satan. And a few verses later, he's thrown into the lake of sulfur and fire forever and ever. He's done away with. There'll be no more sin in heaven. There'll be no more Satan in heaven. That's the end of the story. But right now, we live in the in-between period. And you and I are just like Adam and Eve. That's why the stories in Scripture remind us, this is the kind of God we, we, we worship. A God who's willing to forgive rebellious people. A God who's willing to bring us back. A God who's willing to to do whatever it takes to cover our sin and allow us to come back into his presence to feel safe there. And I don't know about you, but but I've made some very dumb choices all through my life. I still make some some bad ones. I know who God is and how his arms are extended that I can always come back to him. And I want you to know, no matter how far you've strayed, no matter what you've done, no matter where your curiosity has taken you or your experimentation with sin, God says, it's time to come back. I've made a a way for victory over that in your life.